Welcome to Life's Lemonade Unfiltered. We are two moms who are neighbors and friends doing a podcast from the closet. In this podcast, we're getting real about life, kids, womanhood, and all the stuff in between. So buckle up, buttercups, and join us on this roller coaster. Hi guys, it's Kiara here, just doing a little intro for our guest for this episode. Um, We had a little bit of technical difficulties recording this episode, so if it sounds a little weird, just bear with us. At one point, we switched from one recording platform to another, um, but we got it done, and we're so excited to have Dr. Alexander Bakker on our podcast this week. It was a crazy interview. There were so many things we touched on that we didn't have time to fully dive into. I hope you guys love this episode. It was amazing. Um, Dr. Alexander Bucker is a clinical psychologist. He helps people overcome addiction. But beyond that, he has done so much, so, so much. And he explains his whole career and um, how he got to where he is today. So enjoy this episode and let us know what you think. And now here's Dr. Alexander Bach. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. I, I don't even know where to start because you're so, you're like, I'm always so excited to have conversations. And then I looked you up and I was like, holy shit, he's like the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, thank you. Uh, yeah, so like we, we talk therapy all the time mm-hmm. and just like different subjects about it. And so when we merged the the plant medicine stuff in it, I was like, I can't believe that this is like right upon me that it can happen. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Bacher. My pleasure. Maybe it's, uh, you know, I'm not a, I, I don't believe in coincidences, right? I think things happen for reasons. So, you know, the fact that you and my mom just happened to, you know, kind of connect and then, you know, um, she followed up and let me know, you know, how, how about, interactions she had with you and all the cool stuff that you're up to with um, the hummingbird, you know, kind of um, uh, retreats and things like that. So it sounds like it was meant to be. Yeah, definitely was. And so easy to have conversations with your mom. So she's, she's like, she's like on Kiara and I's level. Like, it's like, like we're on five different conversations and then we pick it back up. So it's really fun. New York, New York style, I call it, right? <laughs> <laughs> just nonstop energy talking, you know, like, you know, five different trains of thought at once. Well, let's just do a little intro on you. You're Dr. Alexander Bacher, and you are a clinical psychologist. Is that mainly what you do? Yes. Um, yes. I, you know, I got my PsyD, which is a doctorate in clinical psychology, just because right from day one, I knew I wanted to be more on the clinical side, you know, interacting with clients and, and working with them as opposed to getting a PhD and doing more research, you know, and doing teaching and, and conducting research. So, yeah, I mean, um, basically from, you know, kind of the first semester in, in my master's program, you know, I was out working with um clients uh, in the community, first at uh, El Segundo at the South Bay Center for Counseling. Um, and um, and then from, uh, where did I go after that? I went to Pepperdine has a clinic downtown, um, actually on Skid Row, with the homeless population. So I worked down there for a year. Really, you know, challenging population, a lot of dual diagnosis, as you can imagine, a lot of addiction. Um, and I, I Went back to grad school knowing I wanted to focus on addiction, partly because of my time on Wall Street, which is kind of all of the story. I had a really brief, you know, two-year career on Wall Street that 
it's kind of like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, style where this work hard, play hard mentality, you know, you're getting rewarded for going out, you know, kind of partying with the, you know, the managing directors and people above you and, you know, and, and it's encouraged and it's also, you know, kind of uh, rewarded, right? And, and, you know, a lot of people, friends, colleagues got addicted, you know, and some almost lost their lives and, and I didn't and always wondered, made me wonder, you know, why me and not others? So when I went back to grad school, I focused on my specialization on addiction really from day one. And so after um, the Pepperdine's clinic on Skid Row, I worked at the, um, the VA hospital for a year where they had in, in um, the Valley, um, the Sepulveda VA, where they have a, an addiction uh, day, day patient uh, program there. And then after that, uh, where did I go after that? I went to the Tarzana Treatment Center for a year. And then I uh, did my internship at Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk, California, which is a forensic state hospital for people who are either not guilty by reason of insanity or incompetent to stand trial. Um, and then after spending about two and a half years there, did my postdoc at Betty Ford. And then really the past, gosh, 12 years now, I've worked at a lot of the top addiction treatment centers in Malibu, like Promises Malibu before it went down the drain, uh, and then went to Switzerland, worked at an even more kind of high-end place in Zurich, Switzerland, called the Kusnock Practice, and then came back uh, after three years, worked at Passages Malibu for a couple of years, also started a concierge practice of my own, and then most recently I was at uh, Bridges to Recovery, which is a primary mental health facility in Beverly Hills, also residential. Um, also very high end, but, uh, you know, kind of like a, a psych hospital for the very wealthy. Really. Wow. That's like a whole, that's a whole journey, but like, and, and then you started off with saying you were in wall street temporarily. So what, what segued you out of that? So, um, you know, I was, I graduated from Georgetown, um, uh, in the summer, you know, spring of 2001 and was in training all that summer uh, with Merrill Lynch's uh, investment banking group in New York City. And our first day of real work was Monday, September 10th, 2001. So we were, we were, cro we were across the street, you know, in the World Financial Center on 9-11 when it happened. Uh, so I watched the whole thing, you know, from I was on my way to work and I just come out the subway and was walking a couple blocks away, you know, when the first plane hit, you know, I watched the second plane hit. I actually felt the, you know, the, the shockwave from the explosion, you know, kind of blow by me from the second plane. Um, and make a long story short, you know, um, our building was partly destroyed when the towers fell. Um, you know, you know, uh, by that time we, we switched, locations and we're working at a place kind of further uptown you know i was working in the technology investment banking group you know back then that was the group to be in but then in 2001 that same year you know the tech bubble was bursting and you know they were talking about massive layoff and i was a psychology major at georgetown you know i um kind of fell into banking just because you know my dad was a banker a lot of um friends of mine from georgetown you know kind of another you know, uh, high school classmates were kind of going into banking or consulting and, you know, I thought, you know, it pays really well. Why not? Right. And, and, you know, and so I just kind of, it was just really 
powerful moment to just do some soul searching and reflection as to whether making, you know, millions of dollars, you know, is going to make me happy doing something I'm not passionate about or I'm, I don't really love. And, um, and so really quickly, a couple months after 9-11, they started, you know, letting us know that they were either going to, you know, let go about 70% of our group. Um, either um, we could leave voluntarily and, and get almost like a one-year severance package to leave or, you know, uh, or that, you know, kind of take our chances of being, you know, kind of cut involuntarily. So after a lot of thought, you know, I ended up just leaving. Um, I applied to the CIA briefly for like a year and a half after that because I wanted to run out 9-11 and I wanted to travel and use my psychology. So I was like, it's part of CIA. Um, but because I don't speak any of the languages that interest them, you know, my minimal Spanish and Italian isn't really that useful. <laughs> um, and, and it was only halfway kind of through that year and a half process where I only applied to Pepperdine, you know, because they had a PsyD program, which back then, in, you know, in 2003 was still kind of, you know, new. Not a lot of universities had a PsyD program um and the ones that did pepperdine was one of the best so ended up only applying to pepperdine got in and the rest is history you know kind of no regrets all these years of doing psych work have you found that question that led you on that path of why me and uh, why not me and why them for addiction Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's a couple, you know, I got, I've been asked that a number of times and I, you know, kind of the, I think the answers kind of stayed somewhat similar over the years, you know, and what I keep coming back to is that, you know, kind of like, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about is, you know, that it really um, asks not why the addiction, but why the pain, right? Um, not to say that I haven't had any pain in my life, you know, but I feel like, you know, kind of if I look back on my childhood and and kind of the life that I had and and the support, the environment, you know, that I had, I was really fortunate to have, you know, a lot of support from family, from friends, but also a lot of amazing teachers. You know, I was fortunate to go to a really good private school in in Manhattan, you know, had, you know, um, you know, they say you can count like the number of great professors that you have in your life, you know, kind of on one hand. And I probably had four of them at that school, you know, kind of in my high school that were like these father figures, you know, um, to me. And, um, you know, that kind of just helped support me, guide me. And, and, you know, I mean, with a lot of hard work and determination, you know, kind of was able to create, you know, kind of or, or achieve everything that I set my mind to, you know, and had have success that way. So, um, that and the fact that I think, you know, so not having a lot of trauma, right. Having a lot of support, guidance, you know, kind of encouragement, you know, people who believed in me. Um, and then also I was a really late bloomer when it came to experimenting with drugs and alcohol. I was a big athlete, you know, kind of captain of the soccer team, baseball team, and, um, you know, really anti-alcohol and, and drugs back in high school. And, and, you know, a lot of the evidence shows that, you know, the earlier you start, you know, especially when you're adolescent teen, you know, the brain is still developing so rapidly at that time that, you know, if you introduce, you know, these powerful reinforcing substances to the brain, you know, that it just makes it much more likely that you're going to become addicted and, and, um, you know, either at that point or, you know, if you're going to continue using it, you know, and over time, um, 
you know, you're just kind of building those neural pathways and, and kind of reinforcing it um, to such a degree. And, 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 oh, and the other thing is like, you know, if you're never taught how to have good, you know, emotional self-regulation or, you know, kind of communication skills, then, you know, when those, because they're going to happen. I mean, I'm not to say that my life has been perfect. By no means is that the case. But, but when you have those, you know, kind of um, life challenges that you can, you know, fall back on healthy coping skills, communication skills, uh, and again, kind of social support structures in your life. Yeah. Do you think it's just like the perfect, finding that perfect combination between nature and nurture? I mean, you know, on the whole nature versus nurture debate, I'm definitely further down the, uh, you know, the nurture end of things. I think environment plays a much bigger role than nature. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, research from kind of epigenetics to back that up. Um, yeah, but of course, you know, uh, nature also plays a role for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a saying in the field that, um, what is it? Uh, uh, biology loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's like, hold on, let me, let me like process, that. process those words real quick. Wow. Yeah, definitely. So, so going back to addiction, like, um, you were talking about the brain and the formative years, like if you start using a certain substance before what age would you say is like absolutely going to affect the way your brain develops in your future? Uh, I mean, you know, even just going by, you know, the fact that alcohol is, you know, 21 and over and I mean, tobacco is 18 and over, like, you know, to me, these are, you know, kind of bare minimum guidelines, you know, you know, I'm, you know, that being said, I, you know, I've, my family's European, you know, my father's Italian, I've spent three years living in Switzerland, you know, there's a lot of other countries, I mean, pretty much all of Europe, you know, you can start drinking at the age of 16, beer and wine, you know, and then a hard alcohol at 18, you know, but they also, you know, I mean, they have pretty high rates of addiction and alcoholism there as well, you know, but I think there's also, you know, kind of, there, there's, there's cultural components to it as well. Right. I mean, you know, you know, one can make the argument that because we're so repressive, you know, and kind of restrictive here in the U S that you then have this, you know, binge drinking culture that when kids go off to, you know, college that, that there's just, you know, these insane, this insane focus around drinking and blacking out, you know, and, and kind of going, you know, all out um, and not, you know, as opposed to, you know, um, where if it's something that's not as restrictive or taboo per se, you know, like if you introduce it as kind of part of the culture and kind of, you know, um, using it, you know, kind of uh, as a source of, you know, only with meals or enjoyment with family or friends, not drinking by yourself, not using it as an escape, but using it as a way to kind of connect to community and, and then others, you know, and, and helping to augment, you know, kind of, you know, certain states of mind and not as an escape or, um, you know, to, to numb out. Absolutely. Yeah. We talk about this a lot when we, when we talk about addiction and like, um, especially the prevalence, of alcoholics in our lives yes. and it's kind of crazy because we are always like when I feel sad or like depressed that's not like that seems like the farthest thing from my that thought is like to make any of that feeling worse so what do you think is the difference well I guess you said healthy coping mechanisms but um 
the difference between people just like constantly choosing that to, and in a way, do you feel like it, it makes them feel worse? Like why do they keep doing it or choosing that path as opposed to, I don't know. It just, it just seems like the last thing that I would want to do. I know that's the difference between addiction and. I think not. two things come to mind kind of initially right off the bat. One, you know, is that we live in a culture where like you're really not supposed to kind of show emotions and then, you know, and feel, and oh my God, how many, you know, kind of, kids learn growing up that it's not okay to, you know, show emotion, especially, you know, young boys, right? That you have to kind of keep a stiff upper lip and, you know, and be a man and, and kind of put your big foot bands on and stuff like that, that, you know, you can't show emotion or have those feelings. And so um, I think that's one aspect, you know, kind of if you're in a family environment or culture, or, you know, a community that encourages, you know, free, free expression of emotion and, and kind of processing and validation of that, right? Those feelings and not invalidating them, you know, where you then have to, you know, you're not learning to kind of have to suppress them or push them away or that they're quote bad. I think that's a big factor. Um, and then the other thing, you know, is again, if you're not learning those healthy coping skills or having that support in your life, then I mean, let's be honest, like alcohol, you know, drugs are great ways to kind of just numb out and not feel and and you know you know and, and you know uh i know you like dr gabor mate as well you said he's one of my heroes as well you know and and you know he talks about i think he also mentioned that actually now that i'm thinking about it dr joe Dispenza, another one of my heroes also talks about how we can be addicted really to anything right like we could be addicted to certain emotional states certain ways of being right in terms of anger control or victimization um, you know, so we all kind of have, you know, kind of these addictive tendencies, right? You know, um, but more to the point about how, you know, um, um, things like alcohol or, you know, kind of drugs can be this, it's almost like a best friend that's always there. It's never going to say no to you. It's going to give you exactly what you want. You know, you can count on them. You're going to get what you're looking for, right? You know, which, who, what can who or what can we say that, you know, to uh, in, in our in the other areas of our lives? Probably not many people, right? In terms of loved ones, parents, family members, you know. I mean, you know, we live in a world where everyone's burned out, exhausted, you know, crazy, trying to, you know, juggle a million different things and just kind of keep it together themselves, you know. And so, you know, and and we also live in a world where everyone's always fine, right? And no one ever talks about, you know, how they're really feeling. You guys know what fine stands for? Fucked no. up, insecure, neurotic, and uh, what? I always forget the E. Emotional. Oh, how could I forget that? I'm very emotional. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, one of my clients always said that to me when I'd say, how are you? She's like, I'm fine. And she would repeat it every single time. So it was like ingrained. That's good. <laughs> but I think that's a perfect segue um, because when you were talking about addictions can be anything, I... Um, when I was on my ayahuasca journey, night one, I was had the last minute switch with somebody else. So I was kind of placed like right in front of the musicians. And so night two, before before going into night two, one of the musicians, we were just kind of in the same area. And he said, how was your journey last night? And I said, it was rough. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I feel like I just cracked something open. So I'm going into this one prepared and he goes, did you release your addictions? And I was like, I don't have addictions. And he looks at me like dead face. And he says, 
not even people and not even emotions. And I was like, Oh, like that is, (laughs) yeah, that's how I felt. And I was like, okay, night two, here we go. (laughs) And it was just like how, like, Dr. Gabor Mate was addicted to buying classical CDs. I mean, something so menial can be so big. Like, you just can't go without it. You're addicted. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think if more people looked at what those things are, like an addiction doesn't have to be what society mainstream tells you. It's just alcohol and drugs. Like, there's so many things that it could be. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. You know, and then... You know, and, and and there's evidence again, kind of comes from Dr. Joe Dispenza's studies, right? That we can be addicted to again, kind of certain emotional states, certain ways of being, right? Like, let's say, you know, you're addicted to kind of anger, right, or control, and or you know, and and so, you know, we have um, these neurohormones and neuropeptides, you know, in our brain that every time we experience a certain emotion, right, or emotional state our brain secretes those neuro neurohormones, neuropeptides that match that emotional state, right? So every time we experience anger, boom, you know, kind of our brain gets flooded with those anger hormones and, and neuropeptides, right? And it's like an addict getting their fix, right? So, you know, um, and, you know, um, again, this kind of comes from Joe Dispenza talking about how the you know, the our body is really the unconscious mind, right? That we kind of kept conditioned over time, right? So, you know, if we're getting angry day in, day out, you know, we're bombarding ourselves on a cellular level with those, you know, anger hormones. They're coming to expect it, you know, kind of after a while, right? And if they don't get it, they're like, they start to influence our body and our thoughts. Like, with, hey, we haven't gotten, you know, angry for like 24 hours or 12 hours, you know, it's, or it's, you know, it's like five o'clock. Normally by this time of the day, we're driving home and, you know, getting in road rage and whatnot. I'm like, what's going on? You know, it kind of influences our thoughts and perceptions to kind of look out for it and get that fix. Right. And then as soon as we get it, boom, you know, we get that just like a heroin addict or a cocaine addict getting their fix. You know, it's, uh, we can literally become addicted to our, you know, emotional, our emotions and our ways of being. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about, do we just go about our days creating whatever fix we need? You know what I mean? Like, like you're just talking about being stuck in traffic. Now I need to find that thing that's going to give me my fix. So I think about like being addicted to emotion. Well, and I feel like we just talked about this yeah. recently, how like your, our days are so, um, like they're written already. Like mm-hmm. we've already decided how we're going to go through our day. Well, that's and Dr. Joe Dispenza. Yeah, <laughs> like it's so crazy to think like at the beginning of your day, if you started it and you're like, it's a new day, I don't have to like do everything. Like, how can I make it different? How can I change yeah. it? And people don't do that. They just live through each day, basically right. doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you said you mentioned Dr. Joe Dispenza. Like, yeah, I think it's his research that, you know, talks about how something like, you know, we have like... <laughs> I think it's like 60 or 60,000 or so thoughts per day, right? And out of those roughly 60,000 thoughts, about 90% of the same as the day before and the day before that and the day before that, you know? So we literally just keep recreating, you know, the same reality over and over and over again, you know, kind of on automatic pilot mode, you know? And so it begs the question, you know, do we really have self-will? I would argue most of us don't. Like, you know, we're just slaves to our past conditioning, you know, how we're socialized or conditioned, you know, kind of, you know, growing up and whether by culture, society, you know, family, religion, you know, whatever environment, you know, however it shaped us, you know, and until we start to really 
you know, through things like mindful, you know, meditation, awareness, you know, uh, really, and also doing things like, you know, I, um, I try to challenge myself, right, with, um, you know, to see how addicted I am to certain things, like with food, right? I mean, like I'm Italian, I love carbs, right? <laughs> and so I, I, I um, you know, my, my girlfriend challenged me to, to do a gluten-free month. And at first I was like, you crazy? There's no way I'm going to be able to do that, you know? But then I was like, let me let me prove it to myself. Or let me see how addicted, addicted I am to that, you know, and how my body reacts when I don't do it. I'm actually doing a cleanse right now, um, you know, and have given up caffeine, alcohol. You know, I'm, I'm actually participating in a microdose study with um, UCLA, you know, and kind of did this whole kind of yoga cleanse and eating kind of super healthy and had to get rid of, you know, like cheese and, you know, kind of processed food and, you know, and, and, and again, kind of, you know, seeing how, you know, these little things that, you know, we don't think we're really addicted to can really pop up and, you know, kind of surprises, you know, that we, we're definitely more addicted than we, you know, first thought. I felt that way when I had to prep for my first ayahuasca experience and I didn't follow the dieta like as strictly, I'm sure as you have to, when you go down South, but it was interesting to find where I could disconnect from certain things really easily. And other things like sugar was really hard for me. Um, and even what I consumed as far as media, I was really trying to be careful about not taking so much in before that. And I realized like I really needed to zone out to my podcast and I, cause I'm like a junkie. Um, but I just like, I found that if I didn't have those distractions, I couldn't just like get in, you know, does that make sense? For sure. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uh, I recently wrote a book called Being Human, and I, I titled it Being Human just because, you know, we're, uh, we're called human beings, but we really suck at being, right? You know, we should be called human doings, you know, because uh, we, we live we live in a culture that celebrates doing, multitasking, you know, like running around like a chicken with their head cut off and, and not really being in our bodies, you know, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and a lot, and some of that is, you know, necessary, right. As my God is, as, as you know, kind of a mother and, you know, kind of, and, you know, trying to multitask and take care of, you know, house and children and, and also work a job. I mean, like some of that is, is essential and necessary. Right. But then there's also, you know, kind of, this goes back to as well. I think, you know, we don't, um, either value or, you know, kind of respect or um, honor, you know, feelings that come up. It's just, you know, something that's always, you know, resonated with me, you know, as I started my, you know, grad school. And, and then I guess, you know, they say as a therapist, you know, you, you first need to kind of do your work and kind of be able to go there to then take others there yourself, right? And, and so much of this work, I think, is taking care of oneself, but also knowing and being really connected or tuned into your body, right? To be able to know what you're needing to take care of yourself, to heal yourself, right? I mean, it's kind of made me laugh at times, you know, in graduate school and, and just also, you know, kind of the, the mentality of, of kind of Western mental health treatment, right? Which is that like, you know, we're the doctor that we kind of know best or we're the expert on you. It's like, we don't even know you. All, all we know is what you're telling us and like, like half the time, you don't even know yourself, you know, right. so it's like, like, how can we help you when, you know, you're selectively reporting things or don't even know what's going on with yourself, right? Or, and so 
actually as a segue kind of into psychedelics, right? I mean, that's what I, one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of psychedelic assisted therapy. And I'm so excited about the future for it because when you do therapy, you know, kind of with psychedelics, you're, you're actually, it's a whole different approach. Just I'm the doctor and expert, right? And you're the patient like in terms of power, you know, kind of differential, right? Um, when you're doing psychedelic assisted therapy, it's kind of this even playing field, right? Where I don't pretend to be the expert on you or know everything. It's more, hey, you know, kind of let's, you know, we're going to give you this medicine that's going to really kind of take you deep into your subconscious and, and, you know, kind of open some doors and, and look at things in different ways. And let's, you know, I'll be a guide or a journeyman for you to kind of help, you know, support you and, and kind of process, interpret those things, um, you know, but really just like, you know, if you get a cut on your body, you know, you don't have to tell your body how to heal itself. Like, you know, you're, you know, you clean the wound, you put a bandaid over it and your body knows what to do with it. Right. I, I tend to come at, therapy and, and treatment from a similar standpoint where it's like, you know, you are the expert on yourself, right? My job is to help you kind of reconnect with your, you know, internal, you know, power and, and power to self-heal, right? Physically, you know, psychologically, and remove whatever blockages are there. Similar to like, again, kind of, if you get a cut, you know, cleaning the wound, you know, suturing it, you know, and then kind of keeping it protected right like and then letting the body do itself you create the environmental conditions for those you know processes to occur and then just kind of get out of the way do you think there are people that, like can this work for everyone or are there circumstances where it this isn't for everyone like in my personal thought <laughs> process this is where share we share a little bit <laughs> this is where we differ in our our healing processes <laughs> and our approaches I have horrible anxiety and part of that is like um, not being in control. So like when she's off doing ayahuasca, I'm like, that sounds like a nightmare for me. Like I need to be in control. Like I don't even like to take Benadryl because it, it makes me sleepy and it scares me to be out of control. So like hearing her talk about what you're doing um, is like, oh, cool. But like not for me, <laughs> but do you think that that could help someone like that? And to get over that hurdle of like needing to be in control all the time? That's a great question. It is, you know, and, and I don't think there's, you know, kind of a blanket answer, like a generalized answer. I think it's, you know, for each person, their bodies are different, you know, kind of their experience with these medicines are different, you know, the healing process is, is potentially, you know, different for everyone. Um, but what we're finding, and, you know, and, and unfortunately, a lot of this research is really what we call kind of citizen research, right? Because you can't do formal scientific research on these medicines because there's they're still illegal right there's schedule one substances which is insane you know in my mind how um things like mdma lsd you know psilocybin exactly but the two most destructive and addictive ones alcohol and nicotine no problem right right um and you know it's a whole other story as to why some drugs (laughs) that's another rabbit you know political social you know past but um (laughs) but let's just stay focused on this (laughs) The research that has been done so far, you know, um, with anxiety, you know, kind of end of um, death anxiety, end of life, you know, stage, end of stage, um, sorry, end of life, you know, kind of uh, stage four cancer, you know, um, participants, um, addiction, you know, and, and, and many other things, trauma as well. It's like in some ways these kind of 
medicines, I don't want to say are a panacea, but like seem to work for this whole host of, you know, symptoms. And, and, and why is that? I mean, there's a number of different theories, you know, um, you know, I, I like to think of it that again, like it was the whole idea of like, you know, kind of connecting back with ourselves, you know, what we find is a lot of these <clears throat> medicines stimulate serotonin in the brain and really connect parts of the brain that don't normally talk to one another and interact with one another and actually they shut down the ego center of the brain right we have this it's called the default mode network which is the part of the brain that gives us the experience of being us right and so a lot of these medicines actually turn down the volume on the default mode or ego part of the brain and help us experience reality in these really profound you know different ways yeah. Uh, it's almost like taking blinders off, right? Like imagine like, you know, we see a horse that has these blinders on. And so you're kind of only seeing the world through this narrow band or, or kind of, you know, experience. And and a lot of these psychedelic medicines kind of just scatter the blinders and, and just expand your perceptions to a whole new level, right? And, and to Kiara's point, yeah, a lot of people like can be a little terrifying and scary and frightening. You know, but if you're able to kind of go into it with the mindset that this is just, you know, a four to six hour experience, right? And to kind of approach it, I, I always encourage people. <laughs> like, like, yeah, she's like, that's a long time. You know, <laughs> like an eye when you're, you know, kind of in our lives, right? But right. Um, but going into it, you know, kind of the way a child looks at the world, right? I mean, I'm not a parent yet. I can't wait to be, you know, a father, but I love looking at little kids, right? And especially infants and watching them, you know, kind of with this, you know, amazed curiosity and kind of taking in the world, like, you know, awe and wonder. I mean, if we can get back to that state, right, where we kind of look at the world through just awe and wonder, because, you know, there's like this cheesy expression, right? There's there's two ways you can look at life. One is if nothing is a miracle and the other is if everything is a miracle, right? And it's true, right? Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, we can talk about quantum physics and how, you know, this phone looks pretty solid and, you know, kind of, and um, yeah, you know, solid, but you know, if we take an electron microscope to it, right. You know, you, all you're going to see are electrons popping in and out of existence. Right. You know, and so is, you know, what is matter, right? Like we can go off on that, you know, kind of rabbit hole, <laughs> but you know, when we start to these medicines again, kind of help us experience you know kind of this universal love consciousness god whatever word we want to use like this sense of like oh my god like these things that are like stressing me out or causing anxiety or you know kind of in my life or you know when we have this perspective it's so minimal right and it's so like kind of trivial when it comes to this grand you know kind of transpersonal transformational experience or connectedness that i'm now experiencing right and that's what we find You know, it's like 70%, you know, the research coming out of John Hopkins with psilocybin and, you know, kind of, um, you know, folks who uh, have really stage four cancer and are going to be, you know, potentially die are having these experiences and are no longer afraid of death because they realize like, you know, this, you know, we're just, you know, spiritual beings having this human experience, right? That this is just, you know, kind of a stage of life or, or this kind of, you know, kind of a, yeah, like a stage and the journey of, you know, kind of our soul's existence or. Absolutely. So for someone like Kiara, that is very 
<laughs> interested in the matter of healing and really getting good because I think like like we've said everybody has some kind of trauma right like it might not be my kind of trauma but she certainly has experienced her own so for someone like her that that is curious but also very scared what well, is something actionable she can do before getting I mean maybe way down the line eventually to the the part that she maybe want to try it that she can do in the now like what is a easy not easy but like I said action well and for context for people too like my anxiety led me to obviously like going to the doctor and then the doctor prescribing you medication and then having an adverse reaction to the medication where it's worse than it was before and then you go and tell them that it's worse and they're like oh no like it's just you you gotta just like let the medicine work and so then after an experience like that it's like nobody knows me like I know myself I like you can't tell me that that what I felt was you know Mm -hmm. so it was more than just like anxiety but it's like on top of like being prescribed something by a a doctor who and being made to feel crazy yeah yeah. yes I that's probably a whole nother rabbit hole (laughs) I feel like we're touching on so many rabbit holes because as women too I think we're we're our things are not taken seriously when we're telling people like her husband uh, like he he keeps uh telling me like this pre-workout's really good it's clean it's not gonna make you itchy but I'm I've experienced enough that I have allergic reactions to a lot of them and I just it doesn't matter how clean it is my body's telling me it doesn't want it I found out I was uh, allergic to two different types of antibiotics last year and and I put me in the hospital and I had no idea Mm -hmm. so my body is really quick to say hey this isn't working (laughs) there's 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 tests that you know um some psychiatrists you know say that it's not that useful others you know kind of you know you know use them to me it's you know ridiculous how it's not standard practice where you know we can do a genetic test and see what medicine would, you know, pharmaceutical drugs, you know, kind of antibiotics will kind of work with your body and which ones won't. And the fact that like, this is not standard practice when you go to a psychiatrist, like, let's try this medication. It's like throwing darts against the you know, wall. Like, let's see which one sticks and works. It's like, you know, and like you say, it's like, wait, so I'm going to go through, you know, potentially all these serious side effects, you know, my body's going to be all over the place, you know, and then, but, you know, and then you take me off one and put me on another. And then we don't even know like what the transition phase looks like, allowing, you know, the homeostasis to actually, you know, finding a new baseline to take effect, you know, and then we're just treating, you know, symptoms and side effects with other medications. And it's just, it's crazy. I mean, we have clients that were coming into our facility on, you know, five, six, seven, eight, sometimes 10, 12 different medications. And it's like, you know, oh my God, you know, so, to your point, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's all about getting back to the basics, right? I mean, some of us, you know, kind of like myself, you know, kind of from an early age were, you know, kind of taught good, you know, kind of sleep hygiene, right? Getting to bed in early time, you know, kind of getting those seven, eight, no, actually like eight to nine hours. You know, <laughs> I, I know. We, my we whole life, like right? Babies, don't so, we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I've always from like, you know, a young age, I've never pulled an all nighter in my life. And I've been through a lot of school, right? You know, and then in kind of because I've always felt like, you know, I mean, I'd come home from in high school, I remember coming home from sports, you know, and around like seven o'clock and, you know, kind of showering, changing, eating some dinner, and then like studying from like 730 to 10. And then like, you know, reading past 10 o'clock, and it's like, I'd read it 
page and like wouldn't remember what I just read and, and being like, this is pointless. Like, what am I doing? Right. Like I'm, I'm just going to go to bed and wake up early. And then I would wake up, you know, go to bed then and get up at like five thirty six in the morning. And in that one hour I would accomplish and actually retain much more than doing four more hours that night. Right. And so I think early on and just again, listening to our bodies, like you're saying, right now there's this great Ted talk, you know, kind of uh, sleep is your superpower. Never seen it. I highly recommend it. But what talking it about how, Sleep is your superpower. Okay. You know, um, but how sleep, you know, affects immune system functioning, memory, you know, um, all sorts of things, right? And so when I say getting back to the basics, it's it's really kind of, you know, figuring out, you know, and, and first of all, believing that you deserve to have, you know, kind of the self-care and, and the time, you know, and we're not talking <laughs> about six hours a day, I need right? You, to look you at know, me. we're talking about maybe like, you know, 10, 15 minute breaks here and there, you know, kind of, you know, one hour, a couple of days a week, you know, where it's just you time to do whatever it is that you would love to do. Like for me, I go speed skating, right? I live close to the beach and I throw on my rollerblades and I go for like a 12, 15 mile skate with my favorite wow. music, you know, and, and I've been doing that three to five times a week for the past 20 years. Like, you know, when I okay. do that, it's like my brain's like going on vacation for that one hour, right? I mean, I'm getting the same benefits as I would, you know, going to the Maldives for like, you know, kind of, I don't know, like a, a day or a week, right? So building those things into your schedule, like these are essentials, right? That you have to make time, you don't care, like these are priorities, right? Your self-care. So it's starting with getting back to the basics of sleep, you know, healthy eating, nutrition, exercise, you know, you know, some, maybe some met mindfulness meditation, right? And starting, you know, starting you know, uh, with manageable, realistic, you know, kind of goals that you can then build on, right? At first, just do like one minute a day of meditation, right? Get get like an app, you know, insight timer, whatever it is, and I just have. do one minute, right? And and you slowly start building routines into your day, right? You know, where it's like first, you know, if you don't have the time, well, see how you can make time with your you know supervisor, with your partner, you know, and 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 then say, hey, these are in order for me. I mean, there was just a study that came out a couple weeks ago how you know, the four hour work week is like the best thing ever. Like companies love it. Employees yes. love it. It's like, duh. Like, you know, we could have told you that. Right. You know, right. I mean, like, you know, and, you know, people are more productive. It's like, you know, again, it kind of, you know, that's another reason why I had to leave Wall Street. I'm like, there was like this, you know, mentality. It's like, like, well, what time did you work until last night? I worked until like 3 a.m. It's like, well, I was here until 5. It's like, and you're proud right. of that? The like, suffering the hell, is applauded. What were you doing until then? Pretty sure, you know, you were doing hardly anything because you're so brain dead and unable to focus unless you're doing cocaine. In which case, like, you know, you're, you know, you're, uh, you know, kind of uh, needing it to function and whatnot. Absolutely. But it just, it's like this sick, you know, kind of idea that, um, if you know, unless we're working 18 hours a day, that we're not being productive or we're not being up, living up to our full potential, and it's insane. You know, same with athletes. I remember, you know, um, <laughs> she needs to stop like, looking you know, at you, me like that. <laughs> you, you need to build in time. You know, professional athletes, you know, like have to build in time for that recovery period, right? To kind of recover and, and so that you can then perform up to your highest potential. You know, kind of the next game or the next you know race or whatever it is like you have to you know kind of prepare yourself and honor you know your body and treat it again kind of like a temple you know we only have one of them and so you better take good care of it yeah absolutely that that really like I mean it hits the nail on the head because I have like 
I mean, going back to <laughs> addiction <laughs> and self-care, it, it, it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. So there's always that pendulum swinging, right? Where you have to just wait, f- like you, you got to find that middle ground, whatever that is, right? Mm-hmm. And so like for me, I really fluctuate between taking care of myself to an extreme to completely neglecting myself and, and the inner work. And so it's like, but I, sometimes I use the outer work to punish. Right. And so it's an interesting dynamic where I, I'm so aware of like how close I can teeter right to that. Like, okay, this is good for me. Okay. This is not good if I can't not do it today, you know? So it's it's all about balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just been, really since um, ayahuasca that I've really like reconsidered a lot of my, a lot of my decisions, my life, my, I mean, obviously it's, that's what it's supposed to do, right? It's supposed to lift the veil and Mm -hmm. show you all the things. And we talk about that expansive feeling of like the blinders being off. Right. And so Mm -hmm. now you just, the blinders are off and you can just completely detach from the things. So what, where does your attention need to go or, maybe drift away from right yeah it's kind of like taking inventory and then you know reminding ourselves what's most important right you know and trying to kind of slow down the rat race of you know just kind of keeping our heads above water right to kind of you know uh again kind of looking at our daily weekly you know kind of schedules and lives and seeing you know like where can I start to create some more time and space for me, for my self-care, for my health and well-being, you know, and create these healthy routines, right? Um, you know, and, and going back to the, you know, kind of set us off on this whole discussion, you know, for Kiara, I mean, you know, I mean, if you're scared of these, well, first of all, you know, these medicines have much different effects, different dosages, right? So, I mean, like I mentioned, I'm doing, I'm participating in this UCLA study right now, a microdosing study as a, as a participant, right? And, you know, so you do one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off, and we're, you know, kind of monitoring your brainwaves and also um, uh, journaling. Um, and, you know, these these microdoses are, are we call sub-perceptual, right? You don't even feel that you're on it, right? And if you are, then you cut that dose in half, right? You know, so you don't even know, like, you know, I mean, I, you know, went to go meet up with a friend today for lunch, you know, and, and she had no idea that I'm, you know, just took some psychedelics this morning the microdose right um you know and 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 so you're you know you don't even know that it's there but at the same time what the research you know especially from dr james fodderman who was a stanford back and uh he was a professor back in stanford in the 50s and 60s who did a lot of cool research on lsd back then um and he's got a whole book called the psychedelic explorer's guide you know where um, what we're finding, you know, again, kind of from this, you know, citizen research being done and just preliminary, you know, kind of um, brain research is that even at these microdose levels, right, it kind of causes the brain to interact in a way that it doesn't normally interact with one another, right? So the, the areas of the brain that don't normally talk to each other are starting to talk to each other. You know, and if you think about a relationship or a community, right, the more you communicate, that's a good thing, right? It leads to like more healthy functioning and cooperation and, and efficiency, right? So that's my theory is like, well, that's probably what's happening to the brain. It's like the brain's really interacting with itself in a much more, you know, kind of powerful, effective, efficient way that, you know, it's kind of um, acting again, kind of like this full body vitamin. 
you know, and, and we've seen, you know, kind of, we've seen um, benefits to um, pain disorders, you know, um, anxiety, depression, um, you know, uh, a lot of times creativity, energy, focus as well, you know, uh, from microdosing. But then when you get to the higher, you know, medium or higher doses, you know, then we're kind of getting into the realm of, you know, again, again, shattering the blinders and having radical shifts in perspective, you know, in reality, um, which, you know, for people who are depressed, you know, we kind of get just so stuck in this rut, you know, kind of looking at life in a certain way, thinking about our problems or life in a certain way. And it just gets so, we get so stuck. It's like molasses, right? We just kind of can't break out of it. And and what these higher doses appear to do is it just radically, you know, shifts our perspective on reality in such a profound way that it kind of helps jumpstart things, right? And, and so you, that's why you only need, you know, kind of, again, what the research is telling us, kind of a couple, you know, um, psychedelic-assisted therapy sessions, right, where that jumpstart this process and then kind of lead us or lead people to really start wanting to make healthier choices in their lives in terms of cutting out alcohol or nicotine or eating more healthy or, you know, kind of maybe leaving a job, you know, that's a toxic environment with the boss or, you know, kind of you're, or just you're not happy or passionate about what you're doing, right? Yeah, that's, um, that, you know. No, I was just going to say how... Uh, there's there's so much evidence that shows that being under chronic stress so a lot of times can lead to cancer and you look at how many just oh, yeah. health health issues in general can stem back to just stress right and oh, trauma i mean i'm you know there's uh jerry spencer talks about this right how like you know about 95 percent of all give or take about, you know, 95, and even Dr. Bruce Lipton, right, about 95% of all, you know, diseases, right, are lifestyle-based. About only 5% are genetically-based diseases, right? You know, going back to that nature is. versus nurture, right? I mean, we're huge percentage that are, are more lifestyle-based, right, environmentally-driven, right? You know, we're kind of getting off track with listening to our bodies, listening to to what we're needing, you know, and, and, and having the support, you know, kind of, in, you know, to kind of to follow that intuition, right, or, or accept those boundaries or, you know, kind of leave those toxic environments or, you know, lifestyle or patterns behind us. So how- It can be scary to do, right, because let's face it, like, you know, even though those things that, you know, kind of causes depression, anxiety, whatnot, a lot of times because they're known, like, you know, it's safer than the unknown of what that leaving those things behind might bring yeah we've said that before that being uncomfortable will just leave you just not wanting to step out of those comfort zones because it's so scary to step out and say like i don't know what's going taking those leaps of faith you know they're so scary but i'm sure we can all say that some of the best things in our lives have come from big leaps of faith you know and so Mm -hmm. like just getting to that point where you can kind of put the fear aside for like a quick second and rip the bandaid off. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it seems hard though, but um, how are you integrating um, psilocybin now into your sessions that you do, or how are you working with um, plant medicines to help in your therapy practice? Yeah. So uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of launching, you know, uh, a practice that, geared more towards, you know, 
psychedelic assisted therapy to microdose coaching as well, because it's such, you know, legally a gray area, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't provide any of the medicines myself, you know, obviously because of the legality piece, you know, but what I do is I, you know, I, I know, you know, people who um, make them or produce them, you know, that are chemists and, and kind of legit, you know, people that grow, you know, whether it's psilocybin, you know, um, in very intentional kind of sacred ways that honors the plan and the process, right? You know, and so um, I will, you know, kind of meet with a person if it seems like they're in, you know, it's indicated for them to to explore these different, you know, kind of um, plant medicine or psychedelic assisted therapy routes, you know, kind of connect them with that person to secure the medicines and then work with them once they have those medicines. How do you figure out what kind of dosage to give people? Because I mean, have is it kind of like in ayahuasca where you have to have taken a certain amount of servings to understand each level and each dimension and all that? Is it similar to what you're doing in the therapy world? I mean, uh, part of it is based off of the research that has been done with, you know, the medicines that are available, like psilocybin, the research that's been done with that, you know, John Hopkins, they were giving folks a five gram dose, which is, they called it a hero's dose. I mean, that's, that's a lot, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that'll, that'll like speak you out into the, the universe, um, you know, but the, the mentality is always to start low and go slow, right? Because you can always add, but you cannot take away, right? So, that's you know, sure. really kind of, and that's the thing, like, I feel like a lot of times, Things like LSD, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of psychedelics have gotten a bad rap. Uh, one, because you don't always know what you're getting because it's illegal for the most part. So you have, you, you have no idea what the purity of the substances you're getting is, right? But two, because people don't respect these, you know, kind of molecules, right? I mean, these are can be really powerful, you know, tools, right? And if you're, you know, the most important thing is the set, the setting and the intention that you're bringing to it. So if you're just, you know, using at a music festival, you know, that's why you hear all these horror stories of like, you know, younger adolescents, teens, adults who are just, you know, like, all right, let's, you know, we've been drinking all day, like six and LSD that's and go to like to a me. wave. It's like, oh my God, like that's yeah. the worst idea ever, right? No wonder you're, you know, seeing the devil and like, you know, kind of traumatized and, and then you, you end know, up with never want to, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then you tell everyone all these horrible experiences, like, yeah, it's the worst thing ever, you know, it's like, no, yeah. You know, if we actually educated people about the powers and respected, you know, the power of these medicines and use them with, you know, sacred intention and, and set and setting, they can be incredibly powerful. That's the thing, cool. too. I think you know, I think the way media has gone, too. I, I mean, we heard I heard about it first on Goop, right, on Netflix. And then you hear about it with uh, how to change your mind. So with things becoming more popular, is it kind of scary to think that these places are just kind of popping up that are just starting to do it and also not taking into account, you know, the, the sacredness of the plant. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, there's, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, kind of horror stories about, you know, kind of, uh, and this is also another reason why I kind of want to move forward and start to do it because I, you know, again, I have access or know these folks who, producing and 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 are really high quality pure you know know the dose is it's, it's um it is what it's labeled as right you know where you have these horror stories of people who are you know want to be shamans or coaches or you know um making themselves out to be like you know these guides or these therapists when in reality they have no you know kind of 
background in therapy or, or not licensed or, you know, kind of maybe did a couple ceremonies and so on. And now they think that enables them to be, you know, a guide for others, like, you know, and have, you know, and that's where, again, like a lot of, you know, people do get traumatized or do have these horrible experiences or it just, you know, kind of ruins it for the rest of us who are trying to do it, you know, kind of, you know, in the right ethical, safe, you know, kind of um, manner. Yeah. Do you have any questions? I don't know. <laughs> She's taking, taking it all in. in. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the other thing, you know, just going back to, you know, I mean, that, you know, a lot of times people say like, you know, they're called to go do ayahuasca, called to go work with psilocybin or, or LSD or something like that. And, and so, you know, respecting and honoring that process, right? Not trying to like, you know, as much as we want to, you know, actually when I had my ayahuasca experience down in Peru, like one of my second night, it was kind of the experience of, you know, really powerfully, almost like a flipbook of seeing all these family, friends, mm. former clients, people like, you know, their photo would pop inside my head and I would instantaneously know what was wrong with them and what they needed to do to kind of fix themselves or, or change or feel better. But then also the realization that I can't change people. I can't fix people. You know, I just have to love them and meet them where they are, you know, and help kind of you know, guide them and, and kind of support them, you know, and, and offer them, you know, kind of education or tools or whatnot, but then, you know, kind of let them go on that road on their own. And, you know, if they do want that, you know, me to be a journeyman in that process, help in that manner, but, you know, I can't fix people, right? Um, you know, and there are other ways to get there, you know, I mean, you know, I have uh, these conversations with my, with my girlfriend all the time about because she's, you know, she's a yoga instructor, a very intuitive healer, and, um, you know, and, um, you know, goes back and forth about whether psychedelics are really needed. And and, and I keep telling her, you know, and, and I tell her, like, you're right. Like, you know, we don't need these substances, right? You know, these are kind of the quick and dirty way, I say, to kind of have that, you know, to, to have that spiritual awakening, transformational experiences that will blow your mind, right? But you can also get there naturally through things like holotropic breath work, you know, meditation. I was I had this, and I talk about it in my book, this experience. I was at a yoga class in Santa Monica on like a Tuesday, you know, 11 a.m. class. And we're doing this um, Hatha yoga, which is much more, um, you know, kind of slow and, um, you know, holding poses for like kind of five minutes at a time and really doing breath work. And, and, and literally I started having the same experience as when I was on ayahuasca. I started seeing sacred geometry, you know, feeling this full body orgasm, you know, just, you know, connected to like universal consciousness and kind of open my eyes and look around the class and everyone's <laughs> all is in the kind of their own world. I'm like, I'm just going to go back in my world here. Yeah. You're you know, like, is anybody else here experience. with me? <laughs> you know, and, and that was my kind of wake up call. It's like, wow, like you can do it. You know, you can't know when it's going to happen or always bring it on when you're trying to, but, you know, that is the more natural way of getting there, but it also takes, you know, discipline, dedication to do it day in, day out, sometimes for months or years before you maybe reach that process. Holotropic breath work can get you there more easily and quickly, right? Oh, yeah. uh, but it can also, I... for people who have anxiety, you know, make them feel like you're having a panic attack or whatnot. Right, it That's can. Part if of the you don't control it, it of... can. Which is where the yeah. ice baths or the, the cold plunging is so good because... Like I have to drag her in with me to go plunge in our pool, but 
I just need her to uh, like, I just want to like, I talk about wanting to fix people, right? Like, I just want to take her with me and like, make her suffer in the cold with me because I know she'll feel better. after. I do feel better. But I don't yeah. like to be cold. I know she hates <laughs> to be cold. And so do I but that's where I'm like, okay, I'm going to challenge this thought where she's like, No, I'm going to stay warm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that feeling of uh, I, the the breath work. And so I've also had that experience where I'm in a yoga class or I'm doing breath work where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm somewhere else. Or I just don't feel where I am in my body. You know, like just that I, I've had that where I leave my body. But I think what helps is that with the psychedelics, now I know what that feels like. So I, I can I can now acknowledge when I'm having a moment. Versus before yeah. I would have just kept going past it. Now I'm like, oh, yeah. this is what that felt yeah. like. You can recognize it and also hopefully access it sometimes more easily in that natural way through meditation and breath Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know if you practice any meditation or, you know, kind I do. of. Work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, again, coming back to like, you know, the whole being human piece, right? And, um, one of my favorite studies was uh, I remember learning about in graduate school. You know, kind of they take people one at a time and put them in an empty room by themselves, men and women, right? And they just with a chair on like four blank walls, and they tell them like, "Listen, all we want you to do is just sit here for 20 minutes and hang out. You know, we're gonna close the door. If it gets too uncomfortable, you need to get out of the room. You can push this button and shock yourself to open the door and get out." And it was something like 70% of people chose to shock themselves because it was too uncomfortable for them just to sit there in silence for 20 minutes, right? Wow. You know, and again, to me, like, it was, it's such a validation of how, like, yeah, like, you know, we were so bad at just being, right? Like, mm-hmm. we just need constant distraction, whether it's, you know, Podcast. you know legit distraction <laughs> or just, you know, like being, you know, parents and having jobs and stuff like that. Like, you know, like part of it is because we have to do it. But the other part of it is like, you know, how much of it is, this, you know, Instagram, Netflix, you know, kind of, you know, technology and, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever, because yeah. we can't, we don't, we can't relax. We can't yeah, we just, were just be talking with ourselves. about this last week, actually, about how rarely do we have a moment of just like, nothing on the brain nothing because we just constantly have so much going on but we were both relating in the fact that if I don't have anything on the brain I find myself counting things yeah and she was like so do I and I'm like it's like I can't just I not can't do help anything. it I have to count pointless bullshit to keep this brain busy mm-hmm. yeah right can't just be I know it's amazing now you know I mean I remember you know, if I go on vacation, I'm really good at just kind of as soon as like I'm done with work, it's like, boop, I'm into like, you know, take off the work hat mode and now I'm in vacation mode. But like so many people, friends, family, you know, clients, it's like, you know, like I need like three days to like once I'm on vacation to finally like start to like let go of everything and enjoy it. And of course, by then you only have three days left right, to actually yeah. enjoy it. You know, but it's, you know, we need to kind of find that balance in our lives. And even if it's just setting the alarm, you know, going to bed a little bit earlier and setting an alarm, you know, a little bit early in the morning to get up and create 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, kind of that, you know, just quiet before the storm of the day hits, right? And, you know, kind of getting ourselves centered. So much work to do. To, to, but th- that's the thing. It's in the not working. And I have such a hard time with that. But yeah. I just want to know, like, with all these little paths we've, we've gone down with therapy and plant medicine, do you think it's, like, really possible to fully heal? Or do you think 
it's learning to accept the things that you really can't ever heal from, but accepting it is enough in itself. Yes, I think the latter. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, I haven't read his new book, but Dr. Gabor new book, right? It's called something like The Myth of Normal in an Insane World, I think, or something like that. You know, and, and yeah, like, you know, what is normal? There's no such thing as normal, right? I mean, um, and so it, it's, it's honoring ourselves, like, you know, kind of figuring out who am I, really? Right? It's, it's a really deep question that, you know, sometimes takes years, decades to really answer, right? You know, and, and to really, really, you know, figure out the answer to that question, who am I, you know, what do I want? Why do I want that, right? You know, is it because, that's who I feel I should be or ought to be because of what family, society, culture is telling me I should be, you know, and, and, and really kind of getting clear on those things. And, um, you know, and, 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 and I think I'll end with, you know, one of the things that as I was writing my book, you know, kind of did research on, you know, you know, kind of things like medical miracles, right? Like people who, you know, recover from stage four prostate cancer, breast cancer, all different types of cancers, right? Or, or, or you know, kind of, you know, the one common denominator amongst all those unexplained medical miracles was they had a radical shift in how they experienced themselves and came from a, you know kind of to a place of unconditional love and kind of forgiveness and acceptance of self you know and kind of the world around them and that's what you know kind of caused it's almost again kind of like removing these blockages right and allowing the body to kind of heal itself right because our body is constantly remaking itself from the inside out, like on a cellular level, right? You know, so if we just remove those blockages, look at their emotional, psychological, environmental, physical, you know, you know, it, the body gets back to kind of doing its thing, which it does naturally and knows that. That's a beautiful place to wrap it up. 30 seconds left. <laughs> but I would like for you to please um, let our listeners know where they can find you and your book and your website, because I know you've got several things out there. Yeah, um, you can just Google me, Dr. Alexander Bucker. I have conciergeaddictiontreatment.com. Uh, my book is called Being Human, Reclaiming Our True Power and Potential. 